One of the things that's incredible in that passage is Jesus' omniscience. That's what the woman in the well later refers to when she's talking about it. But I think we often just think it's the omniscience. But if it was just Jesus showing that he knows the human heart, he could have said a lot of other things. He could have said, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. He could have, like he, like he did with one of his disciples, he could have said a lot of things. And yet here you are talking about wells that don't satisfy and the living water. And all of a sudden we're talking about five husbands, the, the current man who's not her husband, and then there's Jesus. You see, he's revealing something about the past of the woman at the well. A very clear idol, a, a very clear ongoing problem, something that stands in the way of Jesus, like the possessions of the rich young ruler, that has to be addressed even as Jesus is telling her about the living water. In a sense, just like he said to the rich young ruler, go sell your possessions and then come follow me. He's saying, look at these wells that keep running dry, all these broken cisterns, if you will, and then look at me. He was engaging her past with the gospel. It was important. And it's important for us as well. So let me give you a quick story from my own personal life that might be helpful. So early in my marriage at one point, uh, we were living very tight financially. And uh, Lindsay accidentally spilled crystal light all over my laptop. Now, laptops, in my day and age, this is before we all had like smartphones, Laptops are how you related to people, how you communicated. You know, it was often necessary for any sort of work you did. Like a laptop is like your most valuable possession. And she accidentally spilled crystallite all over it, uh, which is actually adorable in retrospect because my wife just loves dropping things and breaking things. It's hilarious. Uh, my response to that was not anger. It was not depression. It was not fighting with her. I went to the other side of the room, and I lied down on the rug and just stared up at the ceiling. It was just numb. And for a long time, I just lied there, completely numb and blank. And Lindsay, I think, walked over and was like, this isn't normal. Like, where's your emotion? And we have a rule in our marriage, uh, growing up in the society in which we grew up, if one of us tells the other person, you need to go see a counselor, you need to go see a counselor. Uh, same thing if one of us says, we need to go see a counselor, we go see a counselor. We don't dance around that. There's no no when it comes to those issues. That's, we feel that's part of our responsibility to one another. And so she's like, okay, time for you to go see a counselor and see, see where the ouchie is because this clearly isn't right. And so I go to a counselor, and let's, let's look at me through his eyes. He was a really great Christian counselor at the church we were attending at the time. And he hears about this episode. And so in his own mind, he's already saying, okay, here's the present event that just occurred. Stephen faces something very stressful, very overwhelming. And instead of engaging in conflict, engaging in the messiness of that, he checks out. You could all say he emotionally detached. That was his way of coping with the stress here. All right, so there's our starting point. And then he asked me to start talking about my background, my past, which was filled with a lot of abuse, a lot of trauma, a lot of really, really hard years. And I just talked about it casually, as if I was talking about 
uh, in a sense, my story of grief over the past was like my story of grief over the Washington Redskins. Uh, not really that, that palpable, like it's sad, but uh, wasn't, there wasn't really emotion involved. And so what is like, the counselor probably saying in his, in his head as he's hearing me talk about this? Where's the emotion? And he actually told me that. He said, Stephen, where's the emotion over your past? Like, these are really horrific things you're talking about. Uh, where's the tears? Where's the anger? And I was like, well, you know, the past is the past. You know, it's made me who I am today. Romans 8, 28. Uh, God has a purpose in it. Uh, you know, the, that the past has been healed by the gospel. And he's like, no, it has not. Not for you, it hasn't. Because stoicism is not Christianity. Uh, the lack of emotion is not the result of gospel healing here. Uh, clearly, you've compartmentalized it. In a sense, you've emotionally disconnected from your past, which is what a lot of people do. Like, most everybody does it nowadays. But in Christian circles, we do the same thing, but we just staple Romans 8.28 on it. And we say, oh, the gospel is for after that salvation point, in a sense, as opposed to the years before that. And so now he's noticing the pattern. Okay, so now even as Stephen is describing this, he's emotionally disconnected. And then as we start talking about the past, a natural question for him to ask me as a counselor, he said, so like, uh, what happened and how did you deal with it? So we're talking about the past. So again, grew up in a very abusive household. I wasn't the recipient of it, but it happened all around me all the time. Constant chaos. Uh, Never safe. And there's a lot of options. Kids have very few, few tools in their toolkit for dealing with trauma growing up. You don't have all these complex, sophisticated forms of psychological rationalizations, healthy patterns you can develop. No, you're kids. Uh, so typically, you, you could fight, especially if you're a boy and you're big enough, you can try to fight back. Uh, there's flight. There's physical flight. You can run away. You could take out all of your anger on people at school, which is what me and number, a number of my brothers did, which got us in trouble at school all the time. From about fifth grade to eighth grade, I was getting in fights all the time at school. All the time. I had a horrible temper. Uh, or another thing that a lot of people do, you can emotionally disconnect. You can't, for some people, just running away is not an option. But emotionally, you can retreat into yourself. And I still remember many of those years. It was almost like an out-of-body experience where like, my emotions were just completely shut off and it was like I was just observing, observing everything all around me, completely detached. So all of a sudden, you have a pattern. And does that pattern shape my thinking and shape my ability to embrace the gospel on a regular day-to-day basis? Now think about it. If somebody counseled me in the church just regularly, like I came up to me, one of you guys and told you in the past week what happened between me and Lindsay. You could have talked about God's providence, his sovereign control. Like, it's just a possession. You know, God's sovereign over that. Or his providence. You know, think of the sparrow, the lilies of the field. He takes care of you. Uh, or you owe it to your wife. Husband died to your wife to communicate with her. All those would have been biblically faithful responses. And yet, they wouldn't have hit the mark. They would have been biblically faithful, and yet we, have not, we had not taken the time, in a sense, to wet that scalpel, to learn exactly where the wounds were representing those sin struggles, sin patterns, and apply it with wisdom. And that's what the counselor did. That history of emotionally disconnecting, uh, what does that display about my 
uh, attitude, let's say, toward God? Do I feel like God is safe? Probably not. Uh, when things get hard, am I instinctively going to trust the Lord with my wounds and with my hardship? When I emotionally disconnect, who is protecting me? Me. Uh, I am protecting me. I need to protect me because I was the only one who would protect me growing up. And so when hard times come, I am going to close up and I'm going to keep myself safe. You see all these implications for the gospel? And now we get into all that stuff and we start talking about God's sovereignty and his providence. Uh, And now we're really hitting the mark, right? We're really getting good traction. Even in the past year or two, this has been so helpful. Uh, Pastor Brett Chaplain Fari, I again tried to pull out, you know, my past isn't really, you know, it affects me. I know better now. Uh, But I would still tie it up as I would talk about it with a little ribbon of Romans 8.28. And in essence, it's Pastor Brett who told me at one point, uh, Stephen, you're the one, Romans 8.28, in your past, not God. You're better at explaining Romans 8.28 than experiencing it. And help me start on really a new journey, where, which I recognized years ago, but now I get to start applying, which is you've got to start bringing the gospel back into those early years. The gospel is not just, then God took a hold of my life, and then the rest is gospel. God loved you then and there too. You need to wrestle with that. When other people were not loving you, your Lord loved you. And it's powerful. So when we apply the scalpel to people's hearts, we've got to be careful. Uh, Biblical encouragement is important. And sometimes all we have time for is a quick word of encouragement. But if we have the opportunity to have that conversation, do you want to dig deeper? As Ed Welch would call it, Ed Welch was a longtime counselor at Westminster Philly, and now they have their own department, all these biblical counselors on Philadelphia. He described it as, he said, both sin and suffering have a past, and both drive us to ask the question, what happened? Usually, we're ready to quickly fix it. It should drive us to ask the question, What happened? What is the story of sin and suffering here? I don't want to just engage the surface issues. So often, as these counselors constantly hammer, we talk about sin behaviors as if we're Arminian. We're only dealing with the external sins as if we are sinful because we sin as opposed to we sin because we're sinful. We don't care about just behaviors. We want to get into the heart of things the full depths of our depravity, the story of sin and suffering throughout our whole lives. So we want to explore that story. In my own uh, experience counseling people, and I think most counselors and chaplains and pastors and others would re- uh, relate to this, 90% of marriage issues uh, and, and mental health problems are really family of origin issues. Communication breakdowns. Uh, fights over finances, uh, over sex, over all sorts of other things. Uh, roles within the household. Who does what? So much of it can be traced to that story of sin and suffering. It's sometimes beauty uh, in your past, but all of it is part of that story. And so oftentimes, in order to effectively counsel people, especially married couples, you have to unpack that baggage of the past. Uh, 
Now, our backgrounds are not Ultman. This is important to qualify. You don't go into the backgrounds and then stop there. Some psychiatry will do that. Let's, let's go into the backgrounds just and say, see, it was your dad. Ultimately, it's a story of sin and suffering. It's a story of the brokenness of this world, the fallenness, the sinfulness of this world. And that's what we're getting at. There's a theological point to this. It's a, we, it's, we're not just concerned with background here. But can we really understand someone's practical beliefs without understanding their background? Again, with the story I just gave from my own personal life, you could, I knew the right answers, and you could have given me the right answers all day, and perhaps it would have been a little helpful. Again, God's word doesn't return void, but again, there's so much, you can go so much deeper and love so much better just by asking some questions, just by digging deeper. So let's talk about uh, how to dig deeper. I want to give you some practical points here and there. First of all, it's important to know your audience. In general, it's easier to talk with the young than with the old. Remember that statistic on counseling I gave you last week? Young people are much more open, in general, about their struggles, about their feelings, about their failings, than older folks. The privacy culture is quickly dying. This idea that what happens in the home stays in the home is quickly dying, in part because it's gotten so bad out there. So I remember growing up in my high school, we couldn't necessarily talk to adults, but we could talk to each other. And so we could like, just walk down the hallway talking about this stuff uh, in, our, in our high school. You, you going through abuse right now? Yeah. You going through divorce right now? Yeah. And the same way when I do chappy hour, I go around the circle in a public place like Sam Adams Brew House. You know, what is one point of suffering that would better help us understand you that you've gone through growing up? Man, you'll hear things like, you know, rape, sexual assault, uh, violent abuse, betrayal, infidelity. Just go down the line. And they'll just blurt it out in the middle of a public forum, like in a public place like Sam Adams Brew House. That's how eager people are to talk about these things. So know your audience. Typically, the young are more open than the old. Uh, also, typically, people, say, from the coast are more open than those from, say, middle America. It was a much tougher slog for me in Wisconsin, getting people to open up uh, than in the D.C. area. Again, there's a traditional culture there. What happens in the home stays in the home. Uh, and there's, it's not as visibly broken in, say, the Milwaukee suburbs as is in the D.C. suburbs. And so it doesn't seem as normal to be struggling. It doesn't see, seem to be... Uh, it's not as normal to talk about abuse and divorce and all that other stuff. It will be soon enough. Uh, but you need to know, recognize these differences. It helps you understand who who has an easier time opening up and who doesn't, and how fast you should proceed and get them to open up. Also, the general approach. There's a couple things we want to display. Uh, first of all, uh, questions. Constant questioning. I talked about this last year, too. Questions disarm people. You want to keep the microphone in front of their mouth, not your own. I am an external thinker. Everything I'm thinking, I say. I'm a hardcore extrovert, and that can be a problem with counseling. And one of the ways I try to channel that so I'm not running over people with my words is I constantly, constantly ask questions. And so I'm like testing my conclusions out loud and in question form at the same time so that they can respond to me. So questions are important. Uh, also, constant validation. 
Your goal is to understand their thoughts and affirm their feelings, even if their feelings are wrong. Uh, you feel like the world hates you? I'm not going to argue with that. That must be a really hard feeling. You, I can't imagine how, how painful that would be. Yeah. That's how, like, nine out of ten husbands get themselves in trouble. <laughs> we argue with our wives' feelings. Uh, so questions? Uh, validation. Empathy. Wow, that must be really hard. If I was in your shoes, I think I'd really be struggling. Again, as I think a lot of times husbands struggle to do that. If your wife's had a really hard day, uh, what if you said, you know what, if I were in your shoes, I probably would have as well. Uh, uh, you also often hear wives say, well, if only you knew. What they're in essence, in essence saying is, I really wish you could understand how hard this is. And so saying something to that effect could be really helpful. Also affirmation. Affirmation. Are people just sinners and sufferers? Why do we grieve over sin and suffering? What are we all at root? Sinners. We're, we're, we're sinners. And how are we created, though? In the image of God. We have inherent dignity. And sin and suffering deface that dignity. They corrupt that dignity. They shatter the mirror. And that's heartbreaking. But because of that, there's still dignity there. And there's still God's common grace. And so whenever you can affirm, you affirm. You grieve over the fact that your parents were abusive. Good for you. That shows you're still healthy. You haven't totally closed off. You should grieve over that. Uh, your parents got divorced and then you attempted to take your own life in high school. You know what? Maybe I would have too. Uh, attempts on your life actually make sense, rationally speaking, if you've gone through that. Does that make it a good thing? Not at all. But you can understand how someone would get from point A to point B in that way. You're not crazy for contemplating suicide. Uh, in that mind frame, I can understand why that would be the case. Uh, so constantly affirming people is important as well. So those are just general measures uh, for being tactful in how you engage people. Now the, ex- the actual steps. Step one, explore the present issue. Explore the present issue. Uh, in the Army, we have something called TEMs, Traumatic Event Management. When you're downrange and your battle buddy gets killed, the whole platoon gets brought into a room, oftentimes, if you can, right after they come back from the mission, knowing they're going to have to go back out on a new mission the next day. You don't have much time. You gather them all in a room, and you say, okay, what happened? What are the facts? And what are you feeling? So what are the facts? What are the effects? What are the facts? What are the feelings? In the same way, if you are having a conversation with somebody, and you're now offering counsel care, which you do a lot of times ordinarily, you've already reached a certain point in the relationship, most likely, where, you, where you're going to know some of the hard things you're dealing with in life. So you identify the facts. Uh, my wife just left me. Might be the fact. Okay, so uh, how did you see this coming? Uh, were you fighting a lot leading up to this? When did she leave you? How did that go down? What did she say? Uh, what are you doing right now? Uh, are, are you home alone? Get as many facts as possible. Let's get that baseline. And then just as important, if not more important, 
Now, how are you feeling? Oh, this must be quite a blow. What's this feel like? Is, is, is it anger? Ah, sadness, loss, regret, guilt. Let's unpack these feelings. Uh, so you're getting a good picture of what's happening right now, because you need that solid starting point before you can dig deeper. Uh, So it might be an event, like my wife left me, or it might be depression. You're feeling depressed right now. How long have you been depressed? What does that depression look like? What does it feel like? What has been helpful? What has not been helpful? Step two, looking for transition points. So, all right, you've got now this good picture of the present, facts and feelings, transition points. You want to get in the background, and there's better ways to do it than others. Uh, sometimes you, you can be too blunt. You don't want to just be like, so, you know, were you, were you assaulted as a kid? Or were you abused as a kid? Uh, that could probably be a little too blunt, a little too forward. And I recognize there's differences between what I can do in the, in the chaplain's office than what you all can do. I'm given a lot more leeway to be blunt and direct. But there's subtle ways of getting into these same sorts of questions. You know, it's like when I was dating Lindsay at one point. I was dating her. We were at a wine bar in Seattle. I was visiting from Westminster, California. And we just, got, uh, our, we just set down our glasses of wine. I said, now tell me about your relationship history. She said, no, thank you. Uh, too blunt. Too blunt. Uh, she wasn't my counseling patient. Uh, she'd be my future wife. So transition points. One great way to look for transition points, just like the counselor who counseled me early in our marriage, thought patterns. How are you interpreting the present stressors? That's why asking them about their feelings is so important. The most popular school of thought in psychology nowadays is cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. And what they say is the most important thing are not what you experience, People can go through the same traumas and one be relatively healthy and the other not. They say it's not about the events you experience, it's about how you interpret it in your mind. It's your thought patterns. And so they'll look, like, what is he saying? Is he saying, for example, my wife left me. And this always happens to me. Am I, I guess I just, I'm not worth sticking around for. Are those data points important? And they're also entryways into the past. Now, here's where CBT fails. For them, there's nothing beneath thought patterns. They go down to thought patterns. They say, okay, negative thought patterns, soundtracks going on in their head. So we need to interrupt that. We need to get them to argue with their thoughts. So they teach you how to argue with their thoughts to make you more resilient. In the Army, we call it hunt the good stuff. And so you battle the, the bad thoughts with the good thoughts. And you recognize, hey, it's, the world's not so bad after all which is, can be helpful in the short term, but you guys see how you end up kind of on just this treadmill or this hamster wheel. And the same thoughts that got you into this mess in the first place are the same thoughts that are trying to dig you out. For us, thought patterns are not a stopping point. They are transition points. We say, okay, they've got these thought patterns. Where did they come from? Let's go into backgrounds and beliefs. Last year we talked basics, background, beliefs. Let's get into that deeper territory that gave rise to these thought patterns. So we ask questions. So has something like this ever happened before? Uh, have you ever felt this way before? Those sorts of probing questions 
are gentle. They're, they're a little more subtle, and they continue to give the person you're talking to control. They don't feel as threatened. They still have a mic in front of them, which is your point. And so maybe you might hear, you know what? My mom walked out on us while we were five. Never knew why. I've never seen her since. And I went out with a bunch of girls in high school, and I kept, they kept dumping me because they said I was too high maintenance. And I finally met this girl who promised me she would love me unconditionally. And we got married, and now she's left me. You have a storyline now, right? And there's so much you can dig into. And so it's important to map out those points and have that storyline. So those transition points get you there. And then step three, you explore past events and patterns. That's kind of what Jesus did in John 4. He was exposing a glaring, uh, you could say it's a pattern or a series of events, uh, with this woman, woman at the well. There was a clear issue here with her trying to find satisfaction and love in other people. We all know the exact dynamics of it. The Bible doesn't give us that. Uh, but there's clearly an issue there that had to be unearthed. You know, the great thing for Jesus as a counselor that, well, that makes him very different from us is we're trying to discover these things. For Jesus, he saw it all. He saw it all. So you learn, you learn about the history of the woman of the well. You learn a little bit about these past events and patterns, things that are standing in the way of the gospel. So when we're listening to somebody's story, how do we determine what's significant? And I'll kick that to you guys for a minute. How do you determine what's significant if somebody is sharing with you uh, episodes of their past? Is it, are all their, let's say, their political views particularly significant? All of a sudden they get on their hobby horse about something political? Probably not. What's that? Yeah. My, yeah. Uh, if, yeah, and if they're talking about politics or intellectual things in relation to the past, then they're probably trying to throw up a screen to keep you from getting closer. And that's probably what it would tell you. Uh, so what, are, what significant things would you be looking for? So objectively speaking, what are life events uh, that would be probably really important regardless of who the person is? Death. Death. That's a huge one. Uh, talk to somebody who lost a parent uh, in their childhood or in their teenage years. Uh, there will always be issues coming from that. Yeah? I, I, do, I typically listen for maxims. Okay. Things that they say that rules that they've made. Because mm-hmm. typically our maxims are based off of life experiences. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, and that's useful. That's helpful, Charlie, because in a sense, you're actually going to the beliefs first that they are expressing and going, then taking it back into the background, uh, which, which is helpful. You're absolutely right, because we know that our beliefs are very heavily shaped from our backgrounds. It might be a doorway to asking, well, you know, what makes you Yeah. Yeah, so that's, yeah, it's definitely another great gateway. Uh, is divorce important? Uh, abuse important? Abandonment? Uh, neglect? Uh, how about incredible legalism? Like a house that's all like enforcement and rules and no love or grace? Uh, 
How about parents who fight a lot? Uh, all those sorts of things, it, it really doesn't matter who you are. Those are going to shape you. They're going to affect your view of God and the gospel, and you have to deal with those. But then at the same time, there's, it's also subjective. Could some people take something really minor and really elevate it really high? Some thinking, you know, your dog, uh, your underfed Rottweiler, Fluffy, uh, just died in a dog fight, and you're devastated. And it's, you know, your grandpa died, and you don't really care, but Fluffy died, and now you're, like, just beside yourself. Could that really be a deal breaker for people? Could that be something that really crushes them? That's why we're listening closely. It's oftentimes these big picture issues, you know, divorce, abuse, etc. but not always, and we don't want to assume. Uh, when we do suicide intervention training, that's one of the things we get trained on. Make sure you're really hearing their story and don't follow that red herring. It's so easy to think you have the issue and lock in, and then you start missing somebody. Before you know it, you're way apart. But for some people, they're thinking about taking their own life because their dog died. Uh, in my mind, I'm like, it's a dog, but it's their story, not mine. It's so, so Some of these things are pretty objective that you're looking for. Some are more subjective. It's important to know what was most important to them. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wonderful question, brother. Do do nonverbal does nonverbal language play a huge role in this? So how do you react? The counselor saw me as I was talking about my past, not offering any emotional reaction. It's significant. He's like, all right. We got an issue here that needs to be addressed. Unless you're a sociopath. Unless you're a sociopath, which is also its own issue, but requires a counselor as well. So yeah, how again, this gets back to interpretation. And this is actually tied into that. This is going to be my next step. You're exploring the, also the echoes of these past events and behaviors. How are they talking about it now? No emotion? Or they start talking a little bit about their dad, and they start getting really angry. It's like, huh. Obviously, I just, I just hit upon something. So how are they interpreting now? And also, what are they telling themselves now? So not just their feelings, but what are they saying? Talk about thought patterns, these soundtracks. It sounds cliche, but I see it's almost every time with a kid who grew up in a broken household, like divorce or abuse especially, uh, they start talking about the person who abused them, and they say, well, dad was under a lot of pressure. He was working three jobs. He was doing what he could to provide for a family. Or mom, you know, she suffered abuse too uh, from her parents. Like, so she was really suffering as well. And so the per- kid who grows up in that household makes every excuse under the sun for their parents. But then they actually start talking about maybe some of the events that occurred. And they're like, and that day, there I went again. I just couldn't shut my big mouth. And I, sound, I seem to always get myself in trouble with them. I'm like, wait a second. The way you keep talking about this, you're always making excuses for your parents and heaping the blame upon yourself. And I think kids do that. And as adults, we do that even as we look back upon our childhood because if we had to concede that our parents were out of control, the world would be nothing but chaos. So we couldn't live. 
I think it's one of the reasons why, the kids, why kids usually internalize the guilt. Because if it's wrong with me, then at least I still feel somewhat safe up here. And so how they interpret the events, that's incredibly significant. Now all of a sudden you're always imposing false guilt upon yourself, which does that hamper your ability to wrestle with real guilt before the Lord, your objective guilt before the Lord as a sinner? Yeah. Uh, does it hamper your ability to truly, in a sense, in your, whole, in your heart, hold your parents to account for what they did, perhaps someday for the purpose of truly forgiving them and loving them better, truly showing, showing grace, rather than minimizing their sin, saying these are, this is their sin, and I'm going to engage it as it is so I can love them better with the gospel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Wonderful point, Charlie. Uh, this is why we again value patience in these relationships. Jesus has always been so patient with us. Uh, we were talking about this uh, the other night when a couple of us got together. So often in Mark, you see all these action verbs before Jesus actually calls somebody or heals somebody. So he goes, into, he goes and heals uh, Andrew's mother-in-law, one of his early miracles in the book of Mark. But first, he goes into her house. Then he lifts her up. Or for, no, then he touches her. Then he lifts her up. And then he heals her. Uh, P- Peter's mother-in-law. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Right. So you see a sequence uh, of events before he actually heals her. Jesus so patiently engages people. He doesn't just dart in there, so most of the time at least. There's a patience there, which shows both his love. It's a precursor to his grace. It shows his sovereignty. And so we want to be patient too. And for example, if, you've already, if you're already handling one volatile issue, uh, like maybe today talking about present is enough with your friend. We'll talk about past some other time. We know there's other stuff there, but this is painful enough. Now let's just talk about this and love on them here. And the next conversation, maybe we'll start hitting some of those transition points and start moving deeper. And we do move deeper. There might be a bunch of things. We hear one little thing. Let's just stop there. Slow down. Dwell. Love. And also never be scared to tag somebody else in. Another Christian or brother or sister who might help. The more hands on somebody, the better. Uh, if you feel totally out of your depths, go to somebody who you feel like will be more comfortable. So, you know, let's say you are counseling uh, Will Coggins. And you're like, hey, this is a good conversation. All of a sudden you start running to really hard things. Let's say uh, deployment. Deployments, you always come back messed up. Always. You're going to come back angry. You're going to come back irritable. Uh, no matter if you're behind the wire the whole time, no matter if it's only a month, you always come back from deployment different. And you might engage that and realize also, whoa, I'm out of my depth. Let me go uh, grab Stephen or Charlie uh, or Chris Carbo, one of these other guys in the church who have deployed. 
because we can say, hey there, buddy. Uh, it's okay. You're going to get better. You're going to heal. You should come back erratic, irritable, uh, angry, uh, unnerved, uncomfortable, feel like you don't fit in. All of us come back like that, and you need somebody who can come in like that. So being able to tag other people in. Uh, is counseling often a community effort? Yeah, I mean, ideally. The beautiful thing in the church is if an issue comes up with me, um, a bunch of you are probably going to jump in on it. It's not one of you just trying to hold the line as if you're Jesus himself. So thank you, Charlie. It's a helpful corrective. Uh, so listening for, so this is our, our fourth step, listening for the echoes of the past. So how are they responding to it right now? Uh, and we're listening for that. How are they responding uh, non-verbally in terms of their emotions? How are they interpreting it? But also you're looking for past echoes. How did they handle these things in the past? So now you're looking at coping mechanisms, survival mechanisms, uh, the way in which these things change them. So, for example, I was really sensitive and tender and emotive before all these things started happening in my household. Uh, but what happened to me when all this stuff started going down, it was horrific and I couldn't comprehend it, and so I started emotionally disconnecting. A big way in which I changed. My coping mechanism, wall myself off, compartmentalize. Even when I started telling my story to people, I would give them 97% of it so they'd never come sniffing for the other three that I was most ashamed of and that I found most threatening. So understanding these things, coping mechanisms, survival mechanisms, and why are those things important? Perhaps even more important than the actual events or patterns themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one ended up in the uh, hospital in uh, uh, Japan. Yeah. It was that bad. Mm. So that's one of the things you can have. Yeah, you can go crazy. So you're, you're seeing how it errat- radically affects people, yeah. Yeah. Well done, brother. Yeah, that definitely that as well. Uh, girlfriend breaks up with me, and now I'm contemplating taking my own life. And it's like, wait a second, isn't that a bit of an overreaction? Like we see this all the time, right? All these young adults, all these teenagers, suicidal over like their high school boyfriend or girlfriend breaking up with them, and you're like, what the heck? Like back in my day. The next week, you'd be looking for the next boyfriend or girlfriend. Uh, it, like it, it was painful, but often not like life-shattering, earth-shattering. So there's usually more behind that. It's not just about that present event. So you're right. It, it kneecaps them for the future. And so those coping mechanisms can really debilitate them in the present. Or all of a sudden, they're dealing with real stressors. Like me, and I'm not, like in my marriage, and I'm not handling it in a healthy way because of the past. This is what the, uh, the counselor eventually concluded with me in that counseling appointment. He said, Stephen, God was very gracious to you as a child with that coping mechanism to protect you. Emotionally detaching kept you safe. It helped you survive. And yet this world is not so fundamentally broken and bereft of God's love and grace to just leave us in a survival mindset. 
And the things that kept you alive as a kid are going to kill you as a parent, as a, as a husband, uh, and as a person, as an adult. These things that kept you alive are going to kill you in the present, unless we do something. Dramatically affects you. But not just how you respond to things in the present. Not only does it handicap you emotionally, psychologically, not only does it color your marriages, your parenting, but also your beliefs, right? It's so, was, the, was this coping mechanism going to really stand in my way of truly owning the gospel? I believed in my Savior. My, I professed all the same, thing that you, same things that you guys have professed. I'm totally a Westminster Confession guy. Have all these crystal clear, beautifully formulaic answers. And yet on the heart level, that hadn't totally filtered in. And we could t- continue to feed that intellectual piece and make me feel good about myself up here, or we can deal with down here. And so it becomes a major spiritual issue. A huge part of your sanctification is bringing the gospel to bear upon your past as well as your present. The gospel heals these things. It is not simply moral improvement. It is not simply doctrinal improvement. Typically, in a lot of churches, moral improvement is a big thing. How often are you doing your quiet times? You know, how, have you, how have you been with, with this area of accountability and that issue of, you know, of accountability? Uh, in our circles, a lot of times, it's how are you growing doctrinally? Have you been sanctified on the baptism issue yet? Uh, so much of sanctification is letting the gospel permeate all of your life, which means even in a stable, if you grew up in a stable household, looking at all those patterns still, because it still shapes you, uh, for better or for worse, and constantly unpacking these things, not to relive the past, not to recriminate, but to just bring the flood of the gospel into all those nooks and crannies of your life. And that will be a huge part of your sanctification and your maturity in the gospel. And so that will bring us to next week, where we will talk about uh, belief systems, exploring uh, how these background factors shaped your beliefs. You see how we're painting a picture here that will enable us to really effectively engage somebody with the gospel. So next week, we're going to talk about painting the picture of practical religion. So especially with coping mechanisms, we see the, we're going to start to see the false religion that people set up. It's oriented around these coping mechanisms. The idols I live for, the false identity I live by, the false hope that I present is kind of my redemption for the future. And in so doing, the more we identify those things, like Naomi with her breadwinners, uh, Alimlech, Malin, Killian, who, she, who really were her supporters, kind of her crutches, we knock those idols down one by one until we're left with the true breadwinner, the bread of life, Jesus Christ. So that's where we're going, uh, brothers and sisters. I meant to bring several books and resources here with me today, but I forgot them as I was racing out the door. If you do have a subscription to Modern Ref, I have an article in this month's issue going through a lot of the stuff that we talked about last year. I called the article Christianity in a New Age. The magazine, the title of the magazine is The Myth of Secularism. And it's talked about how we hopefully more effectively engage people with the gospel with all due humility. There's nothing new under the sun. We're not geniuses. Uh, we're just trying to be faithful to our Lord Jesus in this day and age. If you have any questions or thoughts, please talk with me online after this. And let me close up with a word of prayer. Lord God, we are thankful for this time together. What wonderful mercies you shine down upon us. We dig deep in our own lives 
we wrestle with you, allow you to bring the scalpel into our own hearts, cry out with a psalmist, uh, search me and know me, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. We cry these things out and then we seek to do the same with others. Not to get around the gospel, not to recriminate, not to play the victim card. We go into all these places as painful as they are because we believe and we hope beyond hope that the Lord Jesus is faithful to dig into those deep places, those painful places, those empty wells, and fill them with living water. Help us, Lord, to cling to the promises, to cling to the faithfulness of our Savior, to not be deterred by these places, but to go there specifically, intentionally, for our growth in grace, for the growth of your people in grace, for the reaching of the lost, and for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.